Okay. We are technically on episode five. Yes. I thought we were the last episode. Right. Numbers and counting, it's not always my strong suit. Well, we did do one half of one again. So maybe it felt like five. Our microphones weren't working, but we didn't know, so. Yes. Technically. <laughs> right. All right. So I am your host, Sherry Wilson. This is Outline of a Murder, the smart true crime podcast that goes into the why behind the crime. And sitting with me, ladies and gentlemen, is a woman who lived through the golden age of serial killers unscathed. Mom. Yes, I did. But. Yes. Maybe not unscathed. Yes. <laughs> Maybe not. I was trying to think of the right word and I just froze. I couldn't think of the word. I'm like, it has to be a good word. It has to be the right word. I learned recently, I didn't know this, there was another series, and I'll put it on our Instagram, eventually that I watched. Uh, I think it was called The Golden Age of Serial Killers. I did not know there were five operating at one time. You had Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. BTK, which we'll be doing at right. the end of this season, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, Gary Ridgway, and uh, John Wayne Gacy. Yes. Yeah, all five of them at the same time. And it wasn't the Zodiac Killer and the uh, Golden... You know, he was... Golden State, yeah. He was named something different originally. Yes, he was. He was the Night Stalker. Yeah, he's he's the OG Night Stalker until Richard Ramirez. Yes. Uh, Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, I think there are a lot of things that made that a perfect time for serial killers you know we didn't have cell phones people hitchhiked it was a very innocent age and i also found out on this show i think it was an a and e show uh, that they would actually study each other ted bundy was a forerunner and uh, btk would watch newscasts on him and his trial and all that and he wanted to kill more people or get away with it more than Bundy did. Was he the one that, um, I don't think it was him, that did not want to be um, compared to Bundy? Oh, that was actually was Israel Keys. Israel Keys. Yeah. He thought he was superior, better He's than Bundy. He's still the scariest to me. Yeah, he is. Israel Keys was the scariest. Um, of course, you know, just to maintain control, like we talked about the first season, he killed himself very thoroughly, so much so, remember, they couldn't even figure out how he died yeah and he drew those pictures in his blood mm-hmm. yeah he was evil he was he, he was, was. i'm terrible. glad that he's gone and i'm glad that ted bundy was fried you know they take they take the coward way out well i don't know if his was necessarily a coward way as much as it was to control the narrative remember he didn't want to give up all his that's bodies true. that's true and i i think that was just another like slap in the face of the victim's families because we know from what he said was it 11 or 12 mm-hmm maybe 13 victims, but he just wouldn't give it up. The only reason he gave up the two is he knew he was caught. So he was a very evil man. But for today, this is going to be a strange case. And um, just because of the victim, the location, and the circumstances around it, I, you know, I normally name every episode after the the victim, you know, the the victim's name is somewhere. I don't like to put the poop bird's name as a title, but this one I actually have a title for and it's no safe uh, spaces because 
there isn't. People, you know, like even in church, even at a, a hospital, like you never want to, you know, just think that it's safe. And I've got some stories to share too. And so, you know, we're going to stay true to the whole idea of people being safe, people being aware, even in places you think should be safe. That you are safe. Because mm-hmm. we've seen cases over the years churches hospitals Uh everywhere everywhere you go yes schools everywhere and so this is the case of margaret ann paul uh and i hope i'm saying her last name correct so this is in toledo ohio and we're going back quite a ways too this is april 5th 1980 so i was seven in 1980 i'm not going to say my age okay and 1980 was quite a year because I remember the Rubik's Cube. Oh, I remember that. I remember when that came out and I got uh, one for, I think it was either my birthday or Christmas and I solved that sucker. I you worked did? at it and I, and I, all the time I could figure it out all the time. I'd get it all messed up and then I'd do it again. I had so much fun with that because I was bored. So, uh, <laughs> Mount St. Helen erupted. That really impacted me. I remember that and how scary. And I remember that old man that refused to leave the mountain. And he died. I vaguely, vaguely remembered. that. And then post-it notes were invented. I don't know if you knew that. No. John Lennon was shot to death. 1980. Mm Mm-hmm. Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Most popular film. Saw it, of course. I'm a Star Wars nerd. And then greats like ACDC, Black Sabbath, and Queen topped the charts. And then, of course, we cannot forget the best TV show ever. Which was? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play you a song. And I want you to see if you can name that show. Oh. Do I get a prize? If I do. Let's see. Let me make sure I can find the song. The song. I feel like I want like name that tune. Yes. 1980s. Let me think what was it. I know that song. I know that song. Dallas, of course. Remember, I hummed it all the way. To Dallas when we went up there. Oh, my gosh. She hummed it all the way up, all the way back. Southwark. Well, actually, that wasn't the best show in 1980, but to each his own, I suppose. I know you love it, but that you know, was not the best You're just really show. not earning points because the whole wine thing, which, by the way, it's morning. We're doing batch recordings. I'm not busting out wine. No, We'll bust no. them out on an evening. But if you want to contribute to the wine fund or suggest a good one, we're open. Or a so, good case. Yes, of like criminal not, cases, yeah, not, not wine, wine. But a good case. I mean, c- if criminal you want case. to, you can. But. Right. <laughs> Because we're wine newbies, and so far we've been kind of like Stella Rosa. We might we're going to so branch far. out by the time I'm going to open up that cab over there. Okay, but Dukes of Hazard was also a, a hit show, and you know, so it, it was like a just to me 
the 80s, you know, the decadent 80s, you know, you hear about that and all the money that was floating around and just the jewels and the hair and the blue eyeshadow and all of that. So that was kind of the setting for this murder. And yeah, relaxed time. And then, you know, I didn't really realize there were so many serial killers at the same time. Yes. From the eight, 70s, 80s. And A that, little bit into the 80s. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't even realize because I hitchhiked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I walked. I mean, I we, it, remember Dad telling me, "Do not ever hitchhike." But at the time, we lived in Odessa, Texas, and I would ride my bike all the way to my friends. That was quite a ways. They didn't know. They probably would have freaked out if they knew how far I was riding my bike to. I'm sure. Because uh, actually, Otis Tool and um, I don't remember his partner in crime's name, uh, but oh, Henry Lee Lucas. They actually killed a prostitute. Or sex worker uh, over in Odessa, Texas. Yeah, you just don't know. Yeah. Now, the victim of this case, Sister Margaret Ann Paul, she was born in Edgerton on April 6, 1908, and she worked for Mercy Hospital as an administrator uh, as part of the Sisters of Mercy order. So she's a nun. She joined the order when she was 19 years old, and she was described as, quote, the most gentle and sweet person who had a peaceful, quiet sort of strength. How old did you say she was? Let's see. If she was born in 1908, at okay. this time, she'd be, what, 70? Yeah. Uh, two. So she was an older woman. Mm-hmm. Older yeah, definitely. Nun. Yeah. Well, and even though she's the sweet person, nuns could be stern. Oh, yeah, they can. But... A lot of the cases, typically, they're younger people. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're back in the 80s. This is an older victim. She uh, was also, uh, her nephew said in an interview, as I remember her, she was a real sweet, caring, loving person. She cared about people. She always wanted to help people. From an early age, before she went to the convent to become a nun, she was also strict, liking things to be done in order and the way they were supposed to be. So this is one of the um, pictures of her before she was murdered. Which is on the website, outlineofamurderpodcast.com. And then this is an old TV interview. And there she is in the background watching over the, the services. And I think that, yeah, that's that's all the pictures of her that I have, which is really hard actually to find some good you know photos and well, stuff i don't think nuns i mean catholic churches i mean i don't think they took as many pictures well she was actually at the hospital uh-huh. you know that's where she lived uh if i'm not mistaken i think she had quarters there like the priest really did. Mm-hmm. at the hospital mm-hmm. yeah i could be wrong about that but i'm pretty sure that's where she lived as well now as an administrator she what had to be a strong person she didn't put up with a lot of guff right. so even though she was sweet and caring you know she handled her business she wasn't afraid of letting people have it either when things didn't go right, especially when it came to the rituals and the order of the Catholic services. So she was a stickler. Well, she's a nun. Mm-hmm. That's her profession. Yes. So I mean, it's very speak. important so, for her. Yeah. yeah. Uh, at the time of her murder, she was 71. So I don't think she quite reached her 72nd birthday. Uh, oh, in fact, I believe it was the next day. Yeah. Because if she was... Uh, murdered on April 5th, yep, and she was born April 6th, so she would have been 72 the next day. She was traditional. She took her duties very seriously, and she quite frankly frankly didn't give a rip who she offended (laughs) when it came to those duties, which I find myself doing as I get older. Yes. I could care less. Yeah. 
Same yep. here. I yep. could care less. She expected others to be meticulous, dedicated, and routine like she was. I don't believe that she was a jerk, though, but I do believe that she loved her life's purpose. Like, this is what she wanted to be from the time she was little. Took I'd it say very she seriously. she was stern. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, it. she could be probably stern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She wanted to serve at the highest level. She expected others to serve at that level as well. And then on top of that, she also uh, had oversight of 20, at least 20 nuns that lived at the hospital like her. Really? Yeah. Some were students and they were learning how to be. There's a specific word for that. I don't remember what it is. I don't know what it is either. But she was overseeing them as well. There was one uh, priest in particular that really irritated her, and it was Father Gerald Robinson. Most of the staff knew they didn't get along. So this is like they've had several run-ins. Was there a reason they didn't get along? I think probably the way he did things, like he didn't seem to have, he he seemed to have a little bit of a lackadaisical attitude uh, on things in the services, and she didn't like that. Sister Paul, in fact, rebuked Father Robertson in front of all of the parishioners. So they're in a, you know, like a service. After he cut his sermon short against the strict routines in place, it probably didn't help that it was the day before Easter either, which is the most holy week, especially, you know, for the Christian faith, but also Catholics. I mean, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Like Christmas, Christmas and Easter. So yeah, I guess in front of everybody, she chewed them out. And men back then were men, men. Yes. Well, not you only that, but he's the priest. him, and he's the priest. Oh, boy. And in front of everybody. How old was he? He was you know? not as old. He looked like he was probably in his 30s. Okay. I'm not sure on his age. So at this point, it's Easter week. It's Holy Saturday. So the day before, you know, Easter. And there was no mass that morning, so everyone could prepare for Easter Sunday. Security guard Robert Berdowski was making his last rounds before a shift ended at 8 a.m. He checked the sacristy door and found it was locked, which was unusual. He figured they must be working in there to prepare for Easter Sunday, and he didn't want uh, to disturb them. Not long after Robert left the area, Sister Madeline entered the chapel and noticed that things weren't ready. And everybody knows that's unusual. Sister Margaret's going to have everything ready. She went to the sacristy, found it locked. She took out her key to unlock it. Once she opened the door, she saw Sister Paul lying on the floor, obviously attacked. I'm not sure if she started screaming or found someone, but staff members were alerted. Police arrived. A police officer, Davis, Dave Davison, had just sat down to eat breakfast in the hospital cafeteria when a nurse rushed in yelling, You better get to the chapel. There's a dead nun up there. Davison and his partner, Dan Dieter, What's up with the double D names here? Right. <laughs> Dave <laughs> Davison, Dan Dieter. Yeah. Uh, they raced <laughs> to the chapel. They found Sister Paul dead and in a shocking, brutal way. At first, the attack seemed frenzied, but later details actually pointed to a more ritualistic murder designed to humiliate and mock her. So someone angry at her, mm-hmm. very angry at her. They just weren't. Picking nuns randomly. Right. And we'll we'll get to uh, the crime scene, but here's the first photo. So this is the sacristy, and there she is laying there. And we'll get to the details of how she was arranged. This right here is a little bit of a clearer picture. Um, but you can see it looks like 
maybe some undergarments right here down by her feet. Oh, sexual assault, maybe. They didn't, they couldn't find any evidence of it. And from studying it, and I'll describe the, the crime or scene. Or maybe staged. It, it, it was made to definitely humiliate her because what's the worst thing? You know, nuns are virgins or they take an oath to be. And here she's humiliated in this way. Uh, after, you know, the police get there, they start examining the body. Other, you know, detectives arrive, which I'm not sure how secure crime scenes were at that time because, you know, did they walk around like, remember back in the day, they would just, they would allow, well, the Jeffrey McDonald that we did in the Family Annihilator oh, yeah. miniseries. I mean, everybody was in there walking around, photographers, touching journalists. Things, no gloves, moving things, I moving plants. I think one of the ambulance, mm-hmm. the EMT stole his wallet. Right. I mean, there were so many things. It's a lot different back then, I yeah, think, Yeah, so sure. I'm not sure how the 80s were, but I think at this point they were definitely a little more strict, but from what... My research showed there were definitely a lot of people that entered that crime scene. And uh, they found out when they examined her body that she had been strangled from behind. Oh. She was then stabbed 31 times with many of the stab wounds around her chest, neck, and face, which suggests to me it's personal. That is very personal. That many times. Yes, and in that area. Mm-hmm. Then she was lying completely straight as if in a coffin. Like her arms were over her oh, chest they were across. with an altar cloth wrapped around the right arm and another altar, altar cloth laid over her almost like she was the altar. Oh. Nine of the stab wounds uh, in her chest were made through the altar cloth that was laid over her. They found that out later. What's really weird is investigators discovered that those nine were in the shape of an inverted cross. See, the, the, me, I know who did this, but if you're just looking at all that in, information, you immediately would think it was somebody that had something to do with the church. Yes, like maybe a Satanist. Yes. Maybe someone that hates the Catholic Church. Exactly. You know, I mean, obviously it feels ritualistic. It does. And they didn't find that out later. But I think it was one of the investigators in the lab, he started folding it and he realized, wait a minute, this is an inverted cross. And when they did, you know, the knife, they they realized it had been folded and there had been an inverted cross created with the nine stab wounds. Yeah, definitely. I would look into uh, even a even a. Oh, what are they when they're doing the services? The people they call them. Um, uh, anyways, somebody watching the service. It was someone to do with the church. Oh yes, someone to do with maybe the a church. parishioner. Yes, that's the word. Yeah, what's with me in the words today? You know, you were talking till midnight last know, night after tired. midnight. I think you, I was pretty chatty. You're usually go to bed at like five p.m. <laughs> Whatever. And three episodes, I'm three sure. wines, and so <laughs> yakking away. Okay, <clears throat> it appears that after the killer did the cross, the inverted cross, he then removed the altar cloth and stabbed her 22 more times. So it seems methodical and personal, like the killer had an extreme hatred for her, wanted to harm her and her reputation and do everything in his power to attack the thing that she valued most, and that was her faith. That was her duties as a nun. Did he stab her around that cross? Why go to all that trouble and put that 
on yeah, a chest stabber to and do then, the inverted cross yes and then go 22 more times around yes or? and i think that she was already dead i think she oh, was strangled already so now the killer's taking time to stage the scene do this ritualistic you know because an inverted cross is you know bad yes. for people of the christian faith like i'm of the christian faith and i'm that i don't you know, I, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't want like that, that on my, no. Yeah. That's pretty brazen, though, because people all around getting ready for Easter. Yes, it was very that's brazen. Pretty, yeah, that's pretty brazen. Yeah. Okay, it gets worse. Her dress was pulled up, exposing her chest and torso. Her undergarments were pulled down to her ankles, leaving her in the most undignified pose for others to see when they found her. I mean, again, she's a nun. She was probably a virgin. I mean, just that whole idea is really disturbing. It, of course, you know, they're like, okay, is was this a sexually motivated crime? Um, I don't think it was, actually. I think it was to humili- humiliate her. It was an extremely personal attack against her. But there, you know, is some evidence, though, that there might have been a sexual assault, which that would have broken her heart. But they think, and I hate to be too graphic, but they think it was more of an object. Yeah, it was a sexual I knew there was something a sexual assault, but I wasn't sure. But again, but. was the killer motivated for sexual, you know, sadist purposes, or was it to humiliate her? I think it was to humiliate her. And because you, if he did violate her with an object to get, so she's not a virgin anymore. Yes. Um, so every, Plus the inverted down, cross, yes, uh, yeah, making yes. her look like an altar. Mm-hmm. Now, you notice in the crime scene, her skirt was pulled up to expose the lower part of her body. In this crime scene photo, it's not. That's what I was wondering. if, Because, you know, like we were talking about, it was different back then. I wonder if they wanted pulled to cover down, her. Yeah. Or maybe they were trying life-saving measures and it got pulled down. But uh, I know today you would check a pulse very carefully before you touch the body. And if there is no pulse, then you start processing the crime scene and you don't move a single thing. No. So I don't know if this picture was after they already took the initial crime scene photos and they have everything, you know, or if the description of the crime scene was from first, you know, views, witnesses. Right, right. And then they, out of dignity for her, they did that. But you can clearly see her underwear is pulled down uh, to her, her ankles. So it's disturbing. And in spite of the violence that took place in the sacristy, obviously, because she did fight back, it was a very uh, clean crime scene. Um, They did find that as a final touch, the killer smeared her own blood across her forehead in the mockery of last rites. That's terrible. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody in the church for sure. Yeah. They weren't able to get any or much forensic evidence. And again, they're trying to figure out, okay, is this sexually motivated or what? Now, uh, there's a father, uh, Swatecki. Is that how you say his name? Swatecki? Anyway, we'll say Father S. He was a hospital chaplain. He was first on the scene after she was discovered. He administered last rites, which raised the cops' suspicions. They're like, okay, what's, you know, right off the bat, because, you know, it's like before they're even there, he's messing with the body. Father Robinson, the one she had uh, rebuked in front of the parishioners, was also summoned. He had slept in that day due to not having to conduct mass, because remember, they were preparing for Easter. Right, right. 
He stated that he was in the shower at the time of the murder, and when he entered the sacristy, Father S. pointed at him and asked, Why did you do this? Why did you do this? Really? Uh-huh. And the officers were there, the uh-huh. detectives? Uh-huh. And this is uh, Father Robinson. But yes, I found that very, very interesting. What were, do you know what the response was? He uh, just stared at him. Yeah, and wow. he described the moment later, Father Robinson. He said that the hospital director called him and told him that Sister Anne had been murdered. He said that he was, quote, absolutely stunned and didn't think that he had heard right. The director asked him to come and anoint her. He quickly put on his cassock and collar, headed that way. He said that when Father S. said that to him, he just looked at him, turned, and left. He said, I have no idea why until this day. Sister and I got along real well. Well, they didn't witness this. Right. Now I'm like, okay, you're lying. Why are you lying? Yeah, why would you lie? Sister was much to the demeanor that I have. She was quiet, reserved. She did her job and did it well. I never had any conflicts with sister. Well, a lie right there is Mm -hmm. not good. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, some people, maybe they're oblivious to conflict. I remember years ago, I did this quick uh, uh, speech with one of my friends, and he's a very well-controlled person, very well put together, and how he does everything. He's a C personality, so it's always excellence right. and controlled. And this lady kept interrupting him, and I had had problems with her as well. And finally, he looked at her, and he said, you can ask your questions when I'm done presenting my material. Right. And he said, so polite, like he wasn't rude at all. And I was like, good for you, because she interrupts all the time. And afterwards, he said, oh, I was so mad. I hope I didn't come off too mad. And I'm all, that was mad? (laughs) (laughs) You've not seen seen mad. mad. (laughs) Right, right. And so some people, they don't, like conflict to them is different. But she humiliated him. Right. While he was doing his sermon, he got mad and cut it off short. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, he knows people are going to, I'm sure he knew. I'm sure he he was mad. Yeah. Well, it gets weirder. He wasn't holding. So Father S. rode along with Robinson to the burial site in Fremont. Robinson stated that he didn't ask Father S. why he asked him that question. He also remembers that doing the funeral was really difficult for both of them and emotional. He stated that it was a nice day. And he doesn't remember what other people described, which was a storm broke out. A violent wind ripped the doors open and also lightning thunder. It was like out of nowhere during her funeral. So Robinson and okay. Father S. do Father her funeral. Father S. Mm-hmm. says, why did you do this to her? Mm-hmm. Then he has him do the funeral with Both him? of them do the funeral. Isn't that strange? Mm-hmm. And all you know the, he did it or think he did it, but yet. Yeah. And, wow. And this is a picture of the funeral. You know, obviously she's right there. Right. right. Um, but yeah, everybody said, except for him, about the storm that blew up. And the nephew said it was almost like God was like, hey, this guy, like this right. is bad. This is bad. You know. Right. And he's doing the service. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So again, though, he's lying because he states that it was a nice day, but everybody else is like, no, a storm came out of nowhere and blew the doors open. Why would you say that? Is that really a lie? I mean, when you know that, your perception is that off? 
I know it's weird unless you're a pathological liar and you can't help it. Well, that's true. But he said that he spoke to Sister Powell the day that she was murdered. No, the day he buried her, he spoke to her. He spoke to her. So I I guess I'm assuming, you know, like in prayer or something, he's talking to her. And then he also said he visited her gravesite many times over the years. It's just weird. This is weird. And it was weird to the police as well. So he's lying about them getting along well, which they found out, right? Then he's lying about the storm because everybody remembers the storm. They remembered the doors blowing open. And now he's visiting her grave regularly and he's talking to her. Well, they didn't like each other. Right. You know, when you bury somebody, I don't know about anyone else, you you go, but not regular like he did mm-hmm. with her, to well, someone he doesn't even like. And at this point, the family, they don't even know that Robinson is a suspect. Right. In fact, they're the ones that asked him to help officiate the funeral. Oh. Yeah, they had no idea. In a newspaper article and a nephew, I mean, a newspaper article, they both describe the funeral as eerie and creepy. They describe the violent thunderstorm that hit with lots of lightning, almost as if punctuating the evil of the crime. I mean, it's reported in the news and he doesn't remember. Oh, wow. The police were initially looking at both fathers, actually, because... Father S, too? mm Mm-hmm because they were closest to the crime scene and the sister along with other staff members uh you know they were looking at the other sisters and things but there was also a serial killer at that time in lake erie called the sunday slasher and he's going to be one that we're going to do in one of our mini series devoted just to serial killers he was called the sunday slasher police wondered if maybe sister margaret had seen him or had been killed by him. And then they also thought the sister Madeline, who found the body, they also wondered if sister Madeline, who found the body, if she saw the Sunday slasher, she described seeing a black man nicely dressed headed to the chapel. She had never seen him before, which to me wouldn't be unusual. No, obviously. Not chapel, church. And at a hospital. Or hospital, yeah. While still at the crime scene, police got a call about a man that fit the description acting erratic and suspicious. Two, I believe the original two that were eating in the cafeteria, the, the police, went to the bus stop, but he had already either left or they learned he wasn't connected. So let me go through the, the three main suspects. First, right. we're going to start with the Sunday slasher. So here he is. Coral Watts. Now, Sunday slasher, I'm assuming, means he killed people on Sundays. Yes. But at churches or just randomly? Or? It was random and usually out on the street. Did okay. they prove that was him that was there at the hospital? No. Or just an, no, a they, black No, they don't think man. it was. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he sure, the description was very similar to him. Uh, and if you watch the show, he does look like uh, Watts here. But, okay, between the death and then them looking at the three suspects, and it's Carl or Coral Eugene Watts. For two weeks, the detectives conducted several hundred interviews at the hospital. Father Rob Robinson soon became a suspect because he was the only one without an alibi, plus he had lied about the relationship and all of that. Well, actually, they caught him in quite a few lies. Well, and he even said in an interview that someone had confessed to him of murdering Sister Paul. Well, of course he did. The later, he retracted it and said he only told him that because he was afraid they were looking at him, which we'll get We're, to that in a minute. Right. <laughs> 
But the first <clears throat> suspect they looked at was the Sunday slasher. He killed three of his victims between 3 and 5 a.m. on Sunday mornings. He again, he began killing when he was 20 years old, which was in 1974. So now we're at 1980. So he would have been 26. Right. He'd kidnapped victims from their homes, tortured them, then murdered them as well. He always killed young white women. But victims did range in age from 14 to 44, too. A lot of people think that serial killers have a type and an age, and some of them do, but they love killing so much, they will kill just when they have an opportunity. Yeah, a lot of them we know that they have the same type, the Mm -hmm. same uh, way that they murder victims. There's always one, it seems, that's different. And the, like, if you look at Ted Bundy, everybody's like, you know, he had a type, blah, blah. He was triggered because his girlfriend broke up with him and et cetera. I don't believe that. You know, remember we talked about that. I don't think there was any trigger. What no. I think is his fantasy of killing, like most sexual sadists, got to the point where he was going to have to act on it. And because he had a very... Um, I hate to use the word rich, fantasy life, like most serial killers, most sexual sadists. They plan it. They have pictures. They, you know, they they do everything they can to act out the scene before finally killing someone. He would kill. He His youngest victim was 12 years old. And when right. you look at the pictures, everybody's like, oh, my gosh, it looks like the girlfriend that broke up with them. Well, everybody had long hair parted in the middle right. back then. But that girlfriend isn't Elizabeth. Wasn't that her name? It, or no, the this girl was the that first he lived one. with for so long. That's not who we're talking about. He had no. one before that. Yeah. He was killing before that. Yeah. Well. And it was hard to prove. I, they think he I was. think he killed little Ann Burr but when he was 16. But between that age and when he started killing in 1974, there's no known murders. And he said that's when it started was 1974. He he, had been broken up with that girlfriend that he really loved before Elizabeth Kendall for a couple years. But look at the one we did last night. They... He stalked a woman for 18 months. And then killed her, yeah. But Bundy never, Bundy never thought, you know, they called him a child killer, too. Cause he the, didn't like that. And he did not and like And he didn't that. want to be called a rapist, either. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll call you a serial killer then. But the point is that you have to be careful of getting these, like, written and concrete ideas mm-hmm. about killers because, you know, he preferred, uh, Watts preferred young white women. Uh, and even for a long time, they didn't think that people went over races either. Well, if you look at Gary Ridgway, he killed black, white, Asian. It didn't matter. He yeah. killed all women. His main type was a sex worker because they were easy targets. I wouldn't think they would pick him at all because the, even the M.O. wasn't the same mm-hmm. at all as right. a nun right. or as other victims. Well, if you look at BTK, his when he first started, he started developing his M.O., but people need to remember that these serial killers are learning and honing as their craft. Yeah, you're right. That's true. And uh, so, yes, they, they did look at him, but I'm with you. It wasn't... No. You know, his M.O. typically, he would strangle them and stab them, though. He'd bludgeon them and even drown them, which, remember, Bundy did that. He drowned, I think, at least two victims. But, but there wasn't any religious component to, to his, his murders. murders. But so. they're thinking, okay, Sunday slasher, is he killing on Sundays because he hates, you know, religion or God? So they had to look at him at least. He murdered, I didn't know this, dozens 
between 1974 and 1982. Some think he may have killed as many as 80 women. Wow. He attacked in several jurisdictions in different states, which made it hard to connect him. Remember, like they didn't communicate like they do now. No. He rarely, though, sexually assaulted his victims because his crimes were not sexually motivated. He just liked to kill. It made DNA testing hard, too, because he didn't leave any. And I'll show you a picture of some of his victims. I think these are the ones that he uh, confessed to. But if you look at them, they're all, they look different. Every one of them's different. Mm -hmm. You can see some that are older, some that are younger. More brunette, but still there's a blonde. Yeah. And is that just where he lived up in Ohio? Do they have more brunettes than maybe they have blondes like over in California and stuff? Because really there are, you know, people look different in different states. And a lot of that's just the ethnicities that are you know, around that time. But how long did it take him to rule him out? Not long. Not long at all. Uh, He was caught actually May 23rd, 1982, when he broke into the apartment of Lori Lister and Melinda Aguilar in Houston, Texas. He choked Lister until she was unconscious under the stairs below the apartment. Then he entered the apartment and began choking Aguilar. She pretended to be unconscious. Watts tied her up and then dragged Lister's body, but upstairs and into the bathroom. He started filling the bathtub to drown her while preoccupied Aguilar slipped free and jumped out the window to get help. Watts began fantasizing about torturing and killing women by the age of 12. And he had, quote, a pathological hatred of women whom he regarded as evil incarnate when his favorite uncle was allegedly killed by female relatives. Relatives, plural. Relatives. Yeah. He was also diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, but also deemed sane because he knew what he was doing was wrong. He would try to cover up his crimes. He lived less than an hour from Toledo, though, when Sister Paul was killed. He also fit the description of the witness who saw a thin black man at the hospital. He, as a Sunday morning slasher and the killing of a nun, along with the witness, made him a possible suspect. But he was later uh, cleared and DNA cleared him as well. So... They so obviously sister wasn't her killer wasn't caught because that's two years after the murder. Right, they're still trying to figure so it they out. Look at Watts as a suspect. Yeah, yeah, and again we'll be doing him because he's like an unknown to me. I wasn't very aware of his case. I never heard of him. Yeah, and yeah. then Sam Little. He's, Sam Little, I've heard of, but not I hadn't Watts. heard of him until last year. He is a very very scary man, and. Uh, so yes, that's that, those are some of his victims that he uh, you know went to jail for. I'm so glad that Aguilar played dead and was able to get oh, free yeah. and get him caught because he was he was a dangerous man. Now we have Reverend Jerome S. Swatecki. <laughs> Sorry guys, I know I'm butchering that Reverend completely. S. <laughs> Uh, he was a big, gregarious man. He was six one. He loved telling jokes and smoking cigarettes with the hospital staff, which I think is funny as a Catholic priest. But back then, cigarettes were oh, like they, no big and deal. And drinks. They had drinks. Cigarettes yeah. and drinking. But he did have some other bad habits, though. He was described as, quote, an immoral man with a very bad temper and a fondness for knives and, quote, hardcore pornography wow. by Sister Dorothy Marie uh, Balab. Balabuk or Balabuch, who was his housekeeper. Another witness, a security guard, 
hired two days after the murder, David Cohn, stated that in his youthful zeal and desire to catch the perpetrator, he accused Father, or Reverend S., Father S., to his face. He said the priest replied, so what if I did? But police said... He had an airtight alibi. He was eating breakfast with several of the nuns in the hospital dining room at the time of the murder. DNA also later cleared him. What uh, What time did they estimate she was murdered? I don't know. I don't think I had that in my notes. Oh, okay. It's definitely in the morning when she got up to prepare for the service because you know she was already in the right. sacristy, which tells us someone had to know yes. she would be in there. A nun or a priest, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, someone had to know. The final one was Reverend Gerald Robinson, the quiet man who kept to himself. He the had, one that lied so much. Yes. He had a domineering, he was raised by a domineering mother who was heavily involved in the Catholic Church. One source said that he never actually wanted to be a priest, but he didn't have any choice. His mother was going to make sure that he was a priest. Wow. He was ordained by 26 and posted to Mercy Hospital to provide last rites, prayer for friends and families, uh, patients, and conduct regular church services at the chapel. As stated earlier, his mild manner often clashed with Sister Paul's strict approach to service. So it makes me wonder if she reminded him of his mom. So he was a pretty new priest. He was, yeah. So he would be in his 20s, it appears then, at the time of... The, the killing. And he looks actually really kind. Like, you know. He does. Um, he doesn't look like he's a killer at all. No. But you never know. They, they don't have a certain look. Right. That's true. Everybody thinks they do. Yeah, now, that they should look do. like a monster. I mean, if some you look do. at Henry Lee Lucas's Zodiac killer face, pretty uh, scary. He looked like a <laughs> killer. So did his boyfriend, Otis Tool. Uh, as I said earlier, Father Robertson told police at some time that someone had confessed to him about killing Sister Paul. The police demanded that he give him the name, and he refused, stating the sanctity of the confession, which stunned police because they're like, it doesn't matter. You know, one of your coworkers and a nun was killed. But they won't give it up, priest no. won't. So I, I don't know why the police were stunned, because even if he wasn't guilty, I don't see him giving up the name. Especially back then. Mm-hmm. They're strict now. They were just... It was and sacred. And they've loosened up a little bit. Yeah, it I'm was not a sacred. Catholic. I don't know anything about yeah. Catholic churches. I just know what I hear on the news like everybody else. Yep. Or what I read. Yeah. But I do know from people that have been raised by Catholics, you know, in the schools, they were very strict. No nonsense. Yep. yep. Weren't afraid to take the old ruler. Yep. So... Yeah. That's all I really know about the Catholic Church. Well, the police pressed him. He admitted he lied, and now they want a lie detector test, which the father agreed to, and it showed deception. However, he got out of the deception part because he was taking Valium. The examiner wrote that he couldn't verify truthfulness, but he didn't say he failed. The examiner was also concerned because the priest needed to relax to be in a calmer state because of the previous evening's lengthy examination by the police that lasted until 2 a.m. He'd been interrogated twice, each lasting six to eight hours. So a second exam after he'd rested, you know, was inconclusive. However, later, a polygraph examiner, Keith Snyder, uh, reviewed the results and say that the word failed was accurate. 
Now, we know lie detector tests can be very inaccurate. Right. I mean, there are several killers that they have no conscience, and they can lie without any problem whatsoever, and they can trick the lie detector test. So that's not a big deal, but it seems that it's very important that whoever you're doing the lie detector test on, they do need to be relaxed. They can't be on any medication or alcohol or anything like that, and they can't be overly tired. Well, we've had a lot of cases they've taken lie detector tests, and police even don't believe in them to be 100%, but yet they'll give them and give them and give them until they get what they want to get. Yes. And then all of a sudden, that's the truth. Yeah, Yeah, we've seen that before. Yeah. They searched the father's living quarters. Um, They found a letter opener similar in size and shape to many of the sister's injuries. They also tested a small spot of what looked like blood under the handle, but it didn't provide any good result. It appears to be a perfect fit, though, for the weapon based on the imprint and the altar cloth, but it also could have been a pair of scissors that made it, too. They tested both the letter opener and the scissors that were also missing from the scene. But you said a lot of people, I mean, it was common, a lot of them had the letter opener. They did. The letter opener, though, fit into the jaw perfectly. So later they had at the trial, because you know, many years have passed. Yes. I don't know if they exhumed her body. I'm pretty sure they did. I think so. But her skull, and when you put the letter opener in, there was an, you know, like a, a hole in her jaw where she was obviously stabbed. They put the letter opener in there and it fit, like it even made a locking sound. When they put it in that that hole, here's the letter opener. And so this right here could fit the wound. But again, scissors could too. And then this is the altar cloth that they discovered, uh, you know, upside down cross. But also, you'll notice, look at the one of the bloodstained shapes. It looks an awful lot like the letter opener. Yes. And it fit perfectly. I, know, I, I do believe she was... Um, um, they compared it after she was dead for quite yeah, a while. Yeah, I think they pulled her body. It took, yeah, it took a long time for this to yes. have justice for her. When asked about the letter opener, Father Robinson said that he got it at a souvenir as a souvenir from some Boy Scouts when he went with them to a trip. Uh, in an, on a trip to Washington in 1964, he said it was heavy, dull, and thick, not making for a good murder weapon. Wow. But, so offering That's what his he said? expertise, yeah. Oh, he said just sat on his desk and he suggested that he could be the killer because why would he leave the weapon in his room? I don't think that excludes him because washing it, you know, right. And back then there was no DNA yet. Right. But, uh, you know, again, it's almost like that would be a good place actually to put it 
you know? It, well, <laughs> because yeah. who's going to think you'd put the murder weapon back in your room? Well, yeah, they do that because then they they don't think that anyone will think, oh, he's not that dumb. He wouldn't do that because most of them get rid of the And I would think as a weapon. police, if I heard that he had a letter opener, I'd be like, where's the letter opener? Right. Yeah, if it was missing, that to me is like a smoking Wonder, letter opener. Does it say how many years after that they got the letter opener? Was it immediate? Well, here's what happened. Uh, well, let me let me finish up with the okay. the immediate time. Then we're going to fast forward to 2003. Footsteps were also discovered near where Sister Paul was killed. A detective Ross stated that the location of the footsteps pointed to Father Robinson because they were on the floor where he was the only resident. In other words, he had an entire floor to himself, and the footsteps were on that floor from the murder scene. And he's the only one. That's his whole floor. Mm-hmm. But they just didn't have enough evidence. They had the you know, polygraph that showed some deception, but that was sketchy. You know, they find the, you know, letter opener. There's, you know, they test some blood that was found on it, but nothing could come back. Because, again, we're in the 80s, right? So, And in know, the 80s, that, I think you never think of priests as what they, some are now. Yeah, because of all the scandals of the child scandals, you don't even think about that. Yeah, that a priest would do that, and let alone murder a nun. Well, it gets weirder. You know, the crime's weird. The whole father situation is weird. In 2003, a nun came forward to report historical sexual abuse that were recovered memories of being abused as a child and being involved in satanic rituals in the Catholic Church, even child sacrifice. She named Father Robinson as one of the abusers. Her case never went forward. It never landed in court. But it did renew interest in Father Robinson's involvement in the cold case. Okay, recovered memories. Now, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, I uh, remember the satanic panic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. West Memphis 3, the little boys and the mm-hmm. people accused. Mm-hmm. It was all about Satanism, heavy metal music sacrifices the church it's very heavy back then but but not that it's a good thing but it did bring out a lot of what was going on forward yep but but i see why her story wouldn't be believed it's a catholic priest well i think though there was a lot of uh backlash on catholic priests too because around that Mm -hmm. time all those reports were coming out and i remember watching the netflix series on one of the nuns that was killed and it, it was because there was abuse and she discovered it. So there was definitely some bad happenings that were occurring. But where I have a problem is, quote, recovered memories. Mm. Memory is very fluid. Like you can you can discuss something that happened in the past and literally that discussion will put that memory in a different light and change your memory. Well, like we were talking last night about the kids how they see something completely different than how it actually yes. happens. Yes. And I the reason I have a problem with the recovered memory is because what they found is you know, and some therapists were trying to be helpful, but some they had an agenda and it was like they were implanting memories into these people's heads and before you knew it all these people were coming forward saying there was satanism mm-hmm. and satanic ritual and child sacrifices and human sacrifice as adults and blah blah and we know that stuff happens but it was like it blew up i agree and there's 
there's a psychologist I think still do that today. I do too. They can do it today. But then again, there was a case of the the girl that her best friend was murdered, and she had a memory about her father killing her best friend, and it it ended up true. Well, and like the little three year old Aaron Frazier, who mm-hmm. you know, daddy killed mommy. He remembered uh, the you know crime being right. shot and all that. Right. So. I can't say whether this nun's memory was real or not. We don't know. Or pro- protection of, of the priests, because we all know, it's not me, that they're protected even yes, to this they day. Are. It's very frustrating. I mean, how many years that's gone And back? even back then, and I think they still do it today, but for sure back then, they would just move the priest to a yes. different you know, church. And I believe they did him. They did. I think he was moved, yeah. They did. Detectives, you know, they remember, hey, what about Sister Paul? Did anything happen? So they began reexamining the case after this. They pulled out all the original evidence. They start talking to witnesses again. Then they go at this point to his home. So now he's got a, a house, I guess, and they find some interesting things. And this was in 2005. 2003. They talked to a Nancy Jones who recalled Father Robinson hastily leaving the chapel around 7.30 the morning of the murder, but she was never interviewed in 1980. Why didn't she just come forward? I have no idea. She, uh, others saw a priest or someone dressed like a priest running from the chapel at that time as well. And they didn't come forward either. I don't know. I don't know if they came forward, but... And they knew it was a priest, but they didn't have any evidence. And it was, or it was dismissed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They also searched his home. They found several pictures of bodies in caskets. Wow. Remember her body was laid yes. out like she was in a casket. Was one of them hers? No. Police recalled the crime scene and they're like, huh, that's interesting. Who has pictures of bodies in caskets? They also found a book on the occult with different parts highlighted of things that had been done to Paul. Now, I'm not sure if that means much. Like, was he trying to research and figure out what happened to her, or was he a priest, but he was actually a Satanist? You know, they're not sure. I would lean towards that. Then what they, uh, what is also weird is he told police he couldn't remember if he had a key to the sacristy. All nuns, but all priests have a key. He didn't remember there was a storm. Yeah. I mean. He's lying. Another lie. They exhumed her body. Okay, good. I thought they had. They exhumed her body. They conducted DNA testing. At the time of the crime, investigators collected fingernail clippings. After reopening the case, they were placed together in a solution dissolved. Male DNA was found, but we have no way of knowing if the DNA was on the top, the sides, or beneath the victim's nails because they didn't write that down. Oh, no. And was it the first responder? You know what I mean? Like no one knows who Mel's, who the male DNA belongs to because we don't have any of the procedure for how it was collected. But back then they didn't know that because no, DNA wasn't even DNA on the scene. Was, no, no, it wasn't on the scene yet. And then also <laughs> they didn't know the scissors that were used to cut her nails in 1980, were they contaminated? Well, that's true. The prosecutor's office tested 54 people before trial. None matched with the same crime scene evidence. I'm assuming that they would be the first responders, hospital staff, etc. And they didn't test him? They did. Later? As far as the DNA on her undergarments, I couldn't find if it's blood, 
touch DNA, semen, or nothing. I don't know what type of DNA. The crime appeared to be sexually motivated. Some sources say, but no sexual assault was discovered. However, prosecutors said at his trial that she was penetrated with either the cross, the letter opener, or a finger. Sorry to be so graphic. Right. But it's a fact. Yes. Again, I don't think it was sexually motivated. I think it was to humiliate her. But here's the deal. They cleared Watts because his DNA didn't match. They cleared Father S because his DNA didn't match. Well, guess what? It didn't match Father Robinson either. Really? Mm -hmm. But he looks so guilty. I mean, he was, but... It, they used it. Now, this is where, okay, I'll tell you my thoughts at the end. But if they used it to exclude Father S and Coral Watts, why wouldn't it exclude Father Robinson? Exactly. Now, we know that Father S had an alibi. Watts, obviously, they were able to see that he was not in the area uh, to commit the murder. But Father Robinson lies... Uh, his letter but opener, still, all this stuff. You can't exclude him, everybody else, and not him. You know what I mean? Like that's uh, what's right. weird, right? But the jury obviously heard and saw evidence that we don't have access to because they did convict him. But it bothers me. So here's what I did when I started researching this case. I fully believe that he was guilty. But then I started wondering because the DNA, I mean, to me, you just can't exclude other people, that, but not him. The prosecutors built their case around the murder weapon, although no DNA tied it to the murder. But two forensic experts testified that a faint dime-sized medallion with the image of the U.S. Capitol that's on the letter opener is on the cloth, which I showed you. It's this one right here. Right. The victim's wounds also match the letter opener. Blood patterns, the cross and the weapon imprint, testimonies and inconsistencies with Robin's statements all formed their case. They dismissed the DNA as an artifact, meaning it was unrelated. Unrelated? After six hours of deliberation, he was found guilty May 11, 2006 and sentenced to life in prison. So here's what they're saying. They're saying this is leftover DNA. It it must not have been enough to actually tie him to her death. In other words, it wasn't semen. It wasn't a lot of blood. It wasn't a lot of, you know, the fingernails and her scratching, right? So they think that either in her interaction that morning with items or people or maybe some of the first responders or someone who had contact with her body left the DNA. I wish I knew, like, you know, you can see again in the crime scene photo that her underwear is down at her feet. Right. Did someone touch that? They touched the dress, which is obvious. And probably without gloves back then. Yes. So that they're saying it doesn't matter that it doesn't match him because we've got all this other evidence. But, oh, it's so circumstantial. Yeah, but they've convicted people unless... I think 100% he did it. They moved him around. They protected him. And wasn't, if I remember right, didn't he do something else to another nun? I don't think I so. Think, I could swear that I he mean, did I something. I mean, I didn't see anything about that. It Not wouldn't surprise me. Not or anything, me. but, um, oh, I could have swore somebody came forward another nun. Now, here's what's weird, and I'm surprised this was allowed, but I guess... 
you know, like when we were talking about juries and how they look at the defendant and how they present themselves, how they're right. dressed, all that. He wrote, wore his priest collar throughout the trial. And he had no visible reaction when the verdict was read. The Catholic Church did not defrock him, which really bothered the family of Sister Paul. He was reduced to the status of retired and was barred from any public ministry. He was well-liked by prisoners until his death 15 years after his conviction. He had several appeals, but it was held, upheld each time. The judges felt there were plenty of substantive evidence supporting his conviction. Now, again, some suggest that he was a Satanist, and a Reverend Jeffrey Grob, a Catholic priest from Chicago, an expert on church rituals and the occult, testified that the killer had a specialized knowledge of church ritual, that the murder was intended to mock her, and I also saw another true crime documentary on this case. The police you know, found that occult Bible, that satanic right, right. Bible, and other items in his house at the time of his arrest. So it wouldn't surprise me, but I like if you look at the Memphis Three, their killer is still at large because I don't think those three boys I did it either. I don't either. And the main guy that they really suspected, he's weird. I'll just be straight up. He's weird. He's he is got, weird. He's got weird beliefs, but just because you're weird doesn't mean you you're killed three little boys, right? But I 100% think he did this, but 2003, when he had his trial, you know, by then, people were very hesitant and disliking the Catholic Church because things were coming out. Mm-hmm. So that could have had something to do with the jury, you know. Yeah, Maybe you're someone supposed was Catholic. To be well, that, yeah, you're supposed well, to be. Well, Mike, he's served as foreman on several jury trials, and he said that everybody is very much conscious of their duty, and they're working. Like when he served on them, they're working very hard to be very fair and examine all the evidence. Uh, so I think that's the case with most. But I think if you, and I'm sure in jury selection. They were probably talked to about, okay, what's your view of the Catholic Church? But you could lie about that. Because some people, the Catholic Church is weird to them, yes. you know? And then with all the child molestation accusations and ritualistic abuse and stuff, you know, some people just seeing him wearing his Catholic that's, garb. That's what I was saying, yes. To maybe be a bias. Others love the Catholic Church. It's a place of peace for them. It's... Uh, community and support so they'd have a good you know they'd have a good feel for that i'm sure both of them wanted a fair jury because you don't want anything mm-hmm. to go to the appeals and him get out and a catholic priest you know safety and mm-hmm. honesty that that'd be hard it would be and i you know obviously mm-hmm. well I, I wasn't raised in any church but i would definitely say we're protestant as a family, we're not, there's, I can't think of any Catholics in our family line, actually. Um, so the Catholic Church was always something that was a mystery, and I didn't understand a lot of the stuff that they do. It's actually interesting. It is very interesting. Um, so, you know, to me, it would be there be more of a mystery surrounding. But if I knew of the child molestation and the ritualistic abuse, I would have to say, if I was on that jury, yeah. I'm so, not, I wouldn't be a good one. So are you saying you do think he did this? Okay, or you so don't? my thoughts are I think he's guilty as hell. I do too. <laughs> I, was, I was getting a little concerned nope, because you I were, think he's the killer. were leaning towards not. The psychology of his domineering mother, I think, you know, forcing him into the priesthood, 
old school Catholic nun who was strict, who rebuked him in front of everybody, a murder weapon that left an imprint on the cloth. It's very clear it was a letter opener, uh, a fit in her jaw that it fit into perfectly the knowledge of Catholic rituals and the hostility and degradation against her body tells me this was personal and it was done by someone who hated her and hum- uh, humiliated her. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning against it. It reminded him of his mother. I think it was totally humiliation. Mm-hmm. Do you know yeah. what his mother looks like? No, no, but the, Satanic panic. I wanted to touch on that real quick. It caused a moral panic. I remember I lived in it. I got I remember. born again in 1990, no, 1989. And um, I actually met a couple practicing Satanists and a state trooper where they had to deal with that stuff. But it was also blown out of proportion. There were 12,000 unsubstantiated cases of satanic ritual abuse. And it started in the 1980s, and it spread through a lot of the world. But it doesn't seem like this was the case in Sister Margaret, because it seems like the prosecutors and the police, they weren't motivated by satanic panic. It is interesting that he had satanic objects in his house. Though. See, I think that's probably two different things. Mm-hmm. Because he hated her. She humiliated him. They didn't get along. I think that's why he killed her. I'm no detective. I actually think he was probably a Satanist. Yeah. But I, I do. do think he was. But I don't think that's why, why he, he killed, killed her. her. Yeah. Uh, or he could have picked her as a target because he hated her. And then he used his knowledge of satanic rituals and mockery. I, I would believe that, but I just don't think, oh, I'm going to kill her as kill a satanic her as a sacrifice. Satanic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Here's what I want to talk about um, to end this, because again, our purpose is to help people. I want to share a couple brief stories, because again, no safe places, no safe spaces. No. And when Kent was uh, 10, 11, 12, um, we went to this church in town and I, I mean, I would leave my purse sitting there, right. you know, I didn't care, but it's I was, church, I was you know. very protective of him and I, I thought, you know, my stuff could get stolen, you know, but I was willing to take the risk, especially if there wasn't that many people there, but I would not let him roam around the building by himself. I always told him, I don't care who it is. If any man from church other than this, this, and this, so Mike, his grandpa, and there was one other person I trusted. Um, if they ask you to go off, anyone, never, never, ever, ever go off with any man Mm-mm. in the church, even if you know them. Like, I would coach him. And then, you know, like sometimes, like any little boy, he needed to use a restroom. And so I think he was probably about 11 at this time. And I said, okay, hang on one minute. And I went with him to the men's restroom. I knocked on the door, said, hello, is anyone in there? And no one answered. And I looked around, and I said, okay, you can go in. And I waited outside. The reason I did that is when he was four, I was watching, I was taking care of a lady that had Alzheimer's, and I was watching a new show where they showed a little boy running out of a restroom in a restaurant holding himself because he had just been sexually assaulted in the restroom. And that impacted me so much. I was so upset when I saw that. And obviously having a little boy, you know, at the same age. So I 
I was cautious. Well, you know, later I was like, okay, Sherry, you were so paranoid. Like that was ridiculous. But there was one man that I always had a bad feeling. And that's why I would check the bathroom because I didn't trust him. Fast forward years later, at this point, Kent's an adult. He was arrested and put in prison for molesting his grandsons. Not Kent. Right. The but the man, man that I had a yeah. bad feeling, and he was a child molester for a long time. And they you know, knew some it. people you can just sense. You have to, you trust, have your to gut. trust your gut. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, so I was very happy because, you know, you wonder, like, am I being ridiculous? Because, again, you don't want to live your life in or fear. overly protected. Right. Yeah. But I, and then I would get on the, the computer screen, the, se- the sex offenders in our neighborhood, and they looked like grandpas. They oh, looked yeah. like You'd normal people. And I would show Kent their pictures. But, you know, again, some of those crimes have been hidden for so long. Yeah. I mean, and then everything exploded at once. The, the church, the... And this was in a church setting, right? right. And then, um, like, I have one of my uh, family members in the past was raped by her uncle, who was a youth minister, uh, when she was a teenager. Later, he molested his own grandkids. You know, I read an article. They said a lot of molesting is within the family. Mm-hmm. But... Um, molesters go to parks oh, yeah. schools churches oh, yeah. oh well he later in your when, neighbors in the 1990s maybe early 2000s actually i found out that he was uh, a children's minister over in a church not far from where i live and i called the church and said hey you guys need to understand because the family said they wouldn't prosecute him if he would just go away which i don't agree with that no i don't either and so they didn't. Well, now he's in the children's ministry. I told them, hey, you got a child molester and a rapist in your children's ministry. And they had to like out, invite them out to have coffee. So church places are not always safe. And then the final story was my friend lived uh, and still does in, in Colorado Springs. I would go and visit her and I would go to her church, which was New Life. At New Life Church, Ted Haggard, it came out. He was doing meth, sleeping with Mel prostitutes and all of that you know came out well during that time they had life groups and this was the associate pastor's house where this life group was going to occur uh one night after all of that came out and the parents they just didn't want to go that night but i think sometimes you can get under this obligation that you have to you know and they went ahead and went, even though they didn't want to. And the little boy was playing downstairs with all the other kids in the basement. Because most houses in the springs right, have basements. Right. And they're downstairs playing. Come to find out a new man who seemed a little bit mentally slow had started coming to life group. Because, you know, you're Christian. You want to be nice, right? He molested their son. Oh, my. And after that, the son's like, I hate God. I love Satan. Because... He, he let this happen to me. Because God didn't help him, so he went the other way. Well, guess what? God was telling his parents not to go. You know, the, you know people are human. Mm-hmm. So one lesson to learn is just because they're a police officer, just because they're a well, neighbor. Some are animals. But. Or a priest, or it could be anybody. Mm-hmm. Not saying they're all bad. Right. It could be your neighbor. Right. I mean, it could be anybody. You just have to follow your gut. You have to. You have to. I'm going to tell you, this will be real short. I have a, a person I know that one of her kids was arrested for um, child molestation. molestation. And 
they were honoring her. I'm not going to go into too much big detail because I, I don't want the family. You yes. Know. So anyway, they were honoring her on the news as a perfect citizen and just things she's done. And I knew when that was going to happen, and I kept thinking, oh, I just can't have her honored. And I called the news and said, you need to look into this person yes. to Google. And they did, and, and I was so relieved because I watched the segment, and they didn't have it. Good, good. Because I'm not afraid. That That's so dangerous. There's not some- to mention the family that, that it was done to. You know, watching the news one night, and you see the person that did that to your child. Being honored. Well, and if you look at a lot of the people, like even the serial killers, I mean, John Gacy was an upstanding citizen. Right. He had political aspirations. So did Ted Bundy. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was dysfunctional, but a lot of them, they had long-term marriages or children, normal lives, long-term employment. BTK. Yeah. And they get honored in all of this stuff. And I... The science behind trusting your gut is actually valid. They have found that you have all these nerve endings and neurons in your gut that are very powerful. And they also found that emotional connection and all those molecules are dominantly in your gut, if not more than your brain. And so when people get gut feelings or what you call intuition, Mm -hmm. it's usually accurate. It's very accurate, but a lot of people ignore it. Yes, because they don't know. But no. there's a lot of science now supporting that. And you may be wrong, but I know one thing. I would rather check the restroom mm-hmm. and make sure that my little boy was safe than him walk out forever and it's okay changed. to be wrong. Oh, because that would affect him his rest of his life. Oh, yeah. And he was never molested. And I was very cautious. Like, if we did sleepovers, I had to know the kid very well with understanding that kids will be kids. But I would trust my gut. And if I felt the kid wasn't good for him, they didn't hang out with him. And it wasn't until he was probably about 16 or 17 that I let him actually start staying the night at his friends. And people are like, well, that's terrible. He had a blast. He loved being at home. He loved Mm -hmm. his friends over. It was no big deal. And Yeah, uh, it's not like he was locked in the house and couldn't do anything. Exactly. Like, he did fun stuff. When you say, oh, yeah, I didn't let him until 16 or 17, that's what people think. Yeah, no. He had good friends over. They played in the backyard. He always had... He had a great childhood if you talk to him. He's like, it was the best childhood. And he wants that for future kids if I ever get any. Still waiting. So what is your lesson for today? Always be alert. Be smart. Be rude. Don't be a victim. Look around. What... You know, trust if, your gut. Trust your gut. If someone gives you the heebie-jeebies, there's probably a reason. Mm-hmm. Because evil is tangible. Some will try to hide it. Some will dismiss what they're getting. But it's very tangible, and you know it. You know when you're in the presence of evil. The only people I see that don't are those that believe the best about everybody. Well, which I used to do. Because mm-hmm. your mind's like, oh, he's not that bad. Oh, he's Oh, he must have issues. But it could be dangerous. I'm the opposite. I will take note of people that give me the heebie-jeebies. I'll file away what I think is going on. And then I'll interact. I'll be friendly. I'll be nice. But I'm cautious. And then sure enough, I wouldn't say 100% of the time, but I would say a lot of the time, I was absolutely correct. Well, I'm like that now. But when I was younger, you're so naive. Yeah. Because your mind, you've never had bad I was always distrusting. (laughs) Well, I wasn't, but... (laughs) didn't get that from me i didn't but, get raised in the right. uh leave it to beaver june cleaver right. days well so <laughs> i saw a lot of weird people <laughs> right. 
But yeah, that concludes this case. You have any parting? No, I don't. That, that was my yeah. Just be safe. Trust your gut mm-hmm. and tell somebody if you can't. If you feel you can't do anything about it, tell an adult or you and know just tell somebody. Coach your kids. Oh yeah, coach. My your kids. dad always coached me, and he said, "Lillian, if anyone ever tries to grab you, I remember this when I was little. He said, don't just start screaming because they people around you will think that you're a screaming kid that got in trouble. Little brat. Yeah. He said, what you need to scream out is you are not my parent, and that way, if anyone hears you, they'll know. And the help, hopefully, yeah. will come. So just educating your children, not in a scary way, but just very carefully articulating to them, not everybody's and trustworthy. And educate yourself, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and look up the child molesters in your neighborhood and study their faces. And then point them out to everybody. <laughs> Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? Ah!